If you're visiting with us and you do not have a Bible, simply raise your hand and we will put one in your hand. If you don't have a Bible, uh, even if you're not visiting, if somehow you left and forgot yours, uh, raise your hand and we'll put a Bible in your hands. So, anyone at all need a Bible? All right. Luke chapter 9. Again, if you're visiting with us, we go verse by verse through the Bible. Uh, just whatever book we happen to be in, we're currently in the book of Luke on Sundays, and we're in Ezekiel on Wednesdays, although as Russ uh, gave in the announcements in the month of September, we're doing uh, a parental and marriage stewardship teaching series from Pastor Joe Foch uh, out of Calvary Chapel of Philadelphia, and, um, and also at the end of the month in September, uh, uh, the last Sunday in September, uh, my friend former professional boxer Evo Elder will be sharing uh, with you guys, and you're going to be blessed uh, by his ministry. If you want to spar with him afterwards, you feel free to do so, uh, but uh, it's going to be a good time of hearing the word from him. He's one of the assistant pastors in Knoxville, Calvary Chapel, Knoxville, Tennessee, uh, so he's with Pastor Tony Clark the day before, and he'll be with us uh, down at Newport News the day before and with us the last Sunday in the month of September. And of course, the following weekend will be our outreach weekend, the 4th and the 5th, looking forward to what the Lord will do there. But uh, if you're visiting with us, we're in the book of Luke. Uh, we finished the first uh, 10 verses, uh, or the first 9 verses of Luke chapter 9. And so we'll be picking it up with verse 10. I'll be reading verses 10 through 17 in a passage that's probably very familiar, even to many people that maybe have never been to church, they've probably heard something about this passage. Let's look at it together. Luke chapter 9, starting at verse 10. And the apostles, when they had returned, told him all they had done. Then he took them and went aside privately into a deserted place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. But when the multitudes knew it, they followed him. And he received them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who had need of healing. When the day began to wear away, the twelve came and said to him, Send the multitude away that they may go into the surrounding towns and country and lodge and get provisions, for we are in a deserted place here. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish unless uh, we go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. Then he said to the disciples, Make them sit down in groups of 50. And, he, and they did so, and made them all sit down. And he took the loaves, and he took the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed them, and broke them, and gave them to the disciples, and set before the multitude. So they all ate, and were filled, and 12 baskets of the leftover fragments were taken up by them." Lord, we pray that your Spirit now would speak to us as your Spirit spoke through your Son in this time and in this place. Lord, that you would move among us again. And Lord, we know that you promised to do so forever where your word is proclaimed, your power is there. In Jesus' name, amen. Aside from the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this is the only miracle, the only miracle that Jesus performed that's recorded in all four Gospels. This one. The only one. Like all of his miracles, they're all amazing. 
Wouldn't you agree? All of Jesus, have you ever done one? You ever done a miracle? All of his miracles are amazing. All of them are powerful. But why is this one recorded by all four gospel writers? I mean, the gospel writers didn't pick and choose what they were going to write. The Holy Spirit instructed them these things are God-breathed as the Holy Spirit would move upon them what to write. Certainly, it was the Holy Spirit's doing, but why? Is the feeding of the 5,000, is it more amazing than casting out thousands of demons from a man? No. It's not more amazing. And they're both amazing. Uh, how about, is it more amazing than raising someone from the dead? I mean, in my mind, not that God asked my opinion, but in my mind, raising someone from, someone from the dead is more miraculous than the feeding of these thousands, although both are, you know, it's kind of splitting hairs. Which one's more amazing? Which one? You know, but still, raising someone from the dead, and, and seems to be, if you would attend one of the times that Jesus raised someone from the dead, that would be unbelievable. That somebody we knew was dead, but yet those miracles, except for Jesus' own resurrection, aren't recorded in all four Gospels. But I believe what's recorded in the feeding of the 5,000, which is actually closer to probably 15,000. Remember that the Scriptures record 5,000 men in some of the other passages in the same uh, story. We know that it says, besides women and children. So if you add the women and children, we're probably talking conservatively 12,000, 13, 15,000, or even more. But I believe what's recorded here are some very key principles. The reason why it's in all four Gospels, and we don't have a specific, God didn't say, this is why I put it in all four, but we can see some key things here that give us a real indication of why it's recorded in all four of the Gospels. I believe there's key principles and instructions that are taught and given not just to the disciples and the apostles, but given to the church to the end of the age. Particularly given to the church as we do his work until he returns, I believe there's things here that God really wants us as the church to exercise. Things that Jesus would also reiterate uh, before going back to the Father, and these are things, the things that we see in this miracle, in this actual setting here in this deserted place, things that we'll see the apostles would later, they would implement them, they would write them in the epistles to the churches, and this these are things that would actually be necessary in ministering to people, starting with the first churches all the way through, and we would continue to follow the same pattern. You know, when God lays a pattern, you don't want to alter it. Amen? You follow it. And when you follow it, you'll see great things take place. If you're taking notes this morning, I've titled our time in God's Word this morning, More Than Enough. More Than than enough. I think in most of our cases, we love having enough, but it's really a blessing when we have more than enough, isn't it? When you have more than enough that you're able to not only satisfy the needs that you have personally or your family, but you have enough to give somebody else. Isn't that great? When you have more than enough. And Jesus, I'm telling you, and many of you have experienced this in your life, he is more than enough, isn't he? Far more than enough. We'll look at three things from the text this morning. Uh, relationship, responsibility, 
and rejoicing. Relationship, responsibility, and rejoicing. Because as you look at this story, uh, it's more than just the miracle, although we're going to definitely look at that aspect of it. There's a lot here that Jesus wants us to grasp, to implement, to apply in our lives. And uh, behind all of that is going to be the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. But we have to be yielded vessels. We have to be vessels that can be filled to do the work that He's called us to do. I want to start first by looking at this relationship. You look at verse 10, and it tells us something that you know, may be overlooked in, uh, when, when Sunday school teachers are teaching this as a lesson. They generally go straight to the loaves and fishes, right? You got the five loaves, the two fishes, and you got the whole the whole miracle that takes place there. And we got the little you always see the little picture of the little lad, uh, and uh, what is he doing, and these kind of things. And these are important, but this first verse of this kind of drawing away to the place where this miracle would take place, we don't want to overlook, and that's why I've titled this first part relationship. It says the in the apostles when they had returned, told him all they had done, then he took them aside, or went aside privately into a deserted place belonging to the city called Bethsaida, near the uh, Sea of Galilee. And he takes them to this deserted place, but it first says the disciples, they returned. Returned from where? Uh, We'll look at that as well. And they tell him all the things that they had done, and he takes them away privately to this secluded area. Their return, remember he had sent them out, if you're with us last week, if you weren't with us last week, by way of review, he had sent out the 12, remember he told them to go into different cities, whoever will receive you, uh, great, whoever will not receive you, dust off your feet as a witness against them, heal, cast out demons, share the gospel, share the gospel, share the gospel, share the kingdom of God. That was the primary work that they were doing. But in the process, he gave them special power from the Holy Spirit to do the miraculous that it would actually be a witness that they were sent by Jesus himself, that they too were his servants and that they were part of his ministry because they would come in the cities, as I mentioned, hey, we're here on behalf of Jesus of Nazareth. Does anyone need healing? Does anyone want to be forgiven of sin? Does anyone want to have demons cast out? Does anyone want to live forever in heaven with God? Some hands would go up. Some hands would say, get out of our city. We have idols that we love. We're not interested in you. But some received. And so this was their responsibility. The prior uh, passage we looked at, they were to go out, share the gospel, do the work that Jesus had told them to do, but they report back, and now they want to tell him what took place. Their return to me looks like a family, or like a family should look. Everyone gathers around in fellowship and relationship as they share with one another. They're sharing with one another, well, we were in this town, and this is what happened. And we were in this town, and this is what happened. And they're sharing it ultimately to who? To Christ. Sharing it with Jesus. This is how it went. You told us these things would happen, and they exact, exactly like you told us they happened, but here's some other amazing things that took place. And have you ever had these times at the dinner table when everyone wants to share? And the larger the family, you get a big family together, and they haven't seen each other in a while, and, and uh, some people are, are very well-spoken, have a lot to say, some less. But again, there's a lot of things that need to be covered. All, everyone wants to share. It's nice when you have, I love around Thanksgiving time, and you have the family in town, and it's not a rush, and you really can catch up. 
people really can share what's been going on in their life. And it's great. I love that uh, uh, John writes in one of his letters, he said, I have many things to write you, but I'm not going to write them all because I want to see you face to face. Isn't that great? Facebook's okay. Face to face, way better. Social media is okay. has its place. I use it. But it's never going to take the place of face to face. You guys are here this morning face to face. Because face to face has a significance that's greater. They didn't send Jesus an email. They couldn't, obviously, back then anyway. Well, they could have. Jesus, you can do anything, right? But they didn't. They come back and they share with him. And they share with one another. They told him all that they had done. And Jesus, he had the time. He made the time to hear from all the disciples. Sorry, I don't have time for the last two of you. I heard from the other ten. Now it said that he, all of them, told him. Everyone sharing what, and he makes the time. And by the way, uh, they're called here the apostles. Back in uh, verse 1, they're called the disciples. Look at 9 verse 1, go back to verse 1. Then he called the 12 disciples. Now we know Luke had already said previously that they were, Jesus named them the apostles, but here in the 10th verse they're called the apostles. Uh, they come back. See, the apostles were given, remember this, some people will call themselves apostles. And I understand the context. Again, there are, peop it, it, there are people that call themselves apostles today, and I understand the context because there is, there is a school of thought that apostles are church planters or missionaries. And in that sense, that is, that's a fine application. There's nothing wrong with that in an application. But the truest sense of apostles, the truest sense of an apostle, is one that actually was there and walked and talked with Jesus and was given a special anointing and power that Jesus himself, that power to cast out demons, power to heal the sick, power to do these things, and they were given it without reservation on certain missions. They didn't always have it, but that anointing was given to them for those times. And they're returning from such a mission where they were given the power to go into these villages and do these things that was not their own ability. It was the authority Jesus had given them. Remember, he said, All of, I give you my authority. They were given authority at that time. I'm a pastor, but I've never given the authority of the apostles. The apostles wrote doctrine. They wrote the new, most of the New Testament. Some of the New Testament was written by men that were not apostles, such as Luke, but most of it was written by apostles. So keep these things in mind. Uh, they're referred to here as the apostles because of the work that had just been done. But uh, they come and they tell Jesus all these things that had transpired uh, on their missionary journey. They tell about the conversions. They tell about uh, the rejections. They tell about the healings. They tell about the homes uh, that, that had received them, the new, the new friendships that are established. Aren't you, aren't you so thankful that God has given you new Christian friends over the years? And you've gone out and you've gone where God has sent you. Maybe he sent you to Virginia. You didn't expect to move to this state. By the way, before I got, tra I, you know, most of you know I used to be in the business world, and uh, when I took a job transfer from Charlotte, North Carolina to Richmond, Virginia, I was within weeks, I thought, of moving to Dallas, Texas. And the Lord's like, he slammed that door shut and said, you're not going to Dallas, you're going to Richmond. And that's where I ended up. I did not know he was going to call me to be a full-time pastor eventually. Otherwise, I might have drove to Dallas anyway. 
But uh, God knew better and said, this is what's going to happen, and, I, and I'll put you in the pot, and I'll turn the water on, and after it's boiling, it's too late. <laughs> but along the way, I've met new relationships that I would never trade in a million years. And so when God sends us somewhere, he establishes these new relationships, and these, uh, many of these uh, relationships probably would go on to serve the apostles' future in the ministry and the planning of the church. And so they're telling the Lord all these things, the answers to prayer, but guess what else they're conveying to Jesus? Even if they didn't convey it in their words, guess what else they're conveying to the Lord? They're tired. You ever get tired? Tired doing good? The Bible says, do not become weary in what? Well, doing. Doing a lot of good can also make you tired. Doing a lot of bad can probably make you tired too, but doing good can fatigue. And yet Jesus, he's still there to listen. He's still there for them. It's not like Jesus hasn't been serving a lot too. And he was a man acquainted with our same weaknesses. He allowed himself to become human flesh that he would experience the same fatigue that we would experience, but yet he's still there to listen. Husbands and dads, you see Jesus listening to all the twelve, and we think about what relationship means, what it means to be in relationship with people. Husbands and dads, are we taking the time to listen to our wives and children? But I'm tired. Are we taking the time to listen to our wives and children. Are we stopping? Are we turning off the distractions? Are we turning off the distractions to listen, to spend quality time? How did their day go? Was, was there successes and failures that they that want to talk? Every day, every week, we have successes and we have failures. And sometimes people need to be able to share them with someone in their life. Thankfully, we all have Jesus, but again, he puts us in relationships with people. Uh, maybe something funny that happened. Those are nice to have. I enjoy that. Maybe worries or issues on the mind or things uh, they're praying about. Devotions, maybe something they're reading in the Word of God and they want to share that. Or maybe it's just conversation with no specific anything. Just con- men, are, men don't understand how that works, right? We talk about what? Well, really nothing. There's got to be something. There's got to be an outline to this. Because I've got places to go and people to see and things to do and hobbies to address. All of those different things. Sometimes it's just simply communicating and spending time. But wives and moms, are you making that time? Are you making that time for husbands and for your children? If you're not married, and not everybody is, you don't have children, this still applies to other relationships. I'm sure everyone here has some relationship, and it really applies horizontally to any relationship in life. We all have those relationships, but are we investing in, think about this, are we investing in godly relationships? Investing in God. Jesus invested a lot of time with these men, didn't he? A lot of time with them. Three years of nonstop interaction with them. We need to invest quality time with other individuals in these godly relationships, first in our family, but inside the family of God. Again, this is what family relationship. We are only as strong, my brother Sam Nadler says, this church or any other church is only as strong as the families that are in it. And families have to be family to one another, just like they do inside their homes. Uh, Are we taking that valuable time that Jesus did 
to hear one another, to really hear one another. It's been well said, we've been given two ears and one mouth for a reason. Amen? James 1.19, I have to remind myself of this verse plenty. My beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear and slow to speak. Now, Jesus also knew, in addition to hearing them and spending time with them, and listening to the report, did he observe, and he could see in them and hear in them, that as I mentioned, they were tired. They also needed some rest. They also needed refreshment. You ever need some rest? You ever need just to be refreshed? You ever feel really weary? Maybe you feel it this morning. Maybe you came in here and you're like, I don't even know how I got here. Did I drive here? Did someone drive me here? Your eyes are barely open or whatever. Hopefully the Lord will keep them open. <laughs> but also, think about how Jesus is. Whether you're a dad, whether you're a mom, you have responsibility over employees and coworkers. Do you recognize when the people around you, or maybe even under you from an authority standpoint, need rest? You know? Are you able to like stop and say, all right, we're not going to push all the way to Oregon after all. Stop the wagon trail, you know? Do you recognize dads when your family needs a little rest? Or are we moving so fast? But Jesus recognized they need some rest. And do we recognize that as well? And by the way, God knows all about the rest that you and I need, doesn't he? We need sleep. And one of the problems uh, in the modern age, you know, before electricity, before electricity and light bulbs, generally speaking, unless you're a night watchman, or you had some of the security responsibility and military and a few other, there was a few other occupations around the world. The Bible talks about the night watchmen and things like that, the watchers on the wall. But for the most part, most people went to bed shortly after the sunset. And they were able to work very long hours and they had vitality the next day. In the modern age, not only do we have light bulbs keeping us up, but we have iPads keeping us up, television keeping us up, all kinds of other things. But they're not only keeping us up, they're keeping us out of actual rest with the Lord. It's very things that we need to be aware of and understanding. God knows that we need sleep. We need rest. He created a day for us to rest. Are we taking a, a Sabbath? A Sunday, I share with you guys, I teach, but this is not something that robs me of rest. Giving the Word of God out is restful to me, and then I take most of the rest of the day, unless we're uh, doing the correctional outreach on Sunday. I, most of my Sundays, I do take rest. I don't cut the grass today. I'm not out weeding the yard. I'm not out doing all kinds of stuff. I need one day that I kind of lay those things aside and just hang with God's people and hang with the Lord. Amen? Because you need that rest. Monday will come around, and if you haven't taken it, you're going to need it. God knows we need these things. Even a time of retreat is sometimes needed. Jesus took them away privately to a deserted place. There's nothing wrong with vacations. Now, if your life is a permanent vacation, there's something wrong with that. But to go away for a period of time and kind of check out of some of the normal routine is sometimes not only good, but needed. In Mark's gospel, it says in Mark chapter 6, same passage, remember I said it's, it's recorded in four, all four gospels. In Mark 6, 31, it says this, it says, And he said to them, Come aside by yourselves to a, to a deserted place and rest a while. 
and rest a while. Jesus is not against believers taking a time to rest. It's always going to be for a purpose. It says, for there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. This wasn't talking about just that specific day. This was talking about the ministry as a whole. The ministry as a whole for the apostles is they were working so hard to meet needs, they hardly had time to eat sometimes. By the way, the ministry will press you pretty hard. If you want to serve the Lord, if you want to follow the Lord, you're going to have to expend a lot of energy, but the Lord will give you strength. You'll mount up with wings like eagles. You'll run and not be weary in the sense that not defeated weary. You're going to have times when you're, when you're weary, but the Lord won't let you kind of collapse and go no further. He'll take you through it. And that's what he takes them aside to this deserted place, a time to get some rest. But guess what? In this particular case, their rest time ends up being disrupted. It appears from Mark's gospel that they don't even get the rest that Jesus just said they were going to get and needed. Because he said, let's go to a deserted place, let's go get some rest, but it ends up not happening. Has this ever happened to anyone? You plan to get some rest, and it doesn't happen. You just closed your eyes on the couch, and you hear a scream from the second floor. The phone rings. Someone has a need. You were just settled in. You had actually dozed into the first five minutes of that nap, and you're startled. Sometimes it's not even important, the tug of the shirt if you have kids. You woke me up for that? But sometimes it's very important. Sometimes it's incredibly important. Moms and dads, and I, I say this with children because it's the easiest one. You're dog tired, and that's when they get sick. Right? But you don't have a choice at that time to say, I'm tired, you're going to take care of yourself. Right? I'm not getting up. That's when you start to ask the Lord for hidden strength that comes from heaven. Amen? Let's look at this responsibility. We go from relationship to responsibility. Responsibility. And as I mentioned, there's a lot here that Jesus wants the church to understand. Uh, it says in Mark, 30, uh, Mark chapter 6, 32 and 33, uh, as I mentioned, Mark 6, 31, Jesus said, let's go to this deserted place. You guys need some rest. Now, Jesus knew they needed the rest, told them they needed the rest, and knew they weren't going to get it. Is he playing games? Or is he teaching something here? You know, I, I love the movie Facing the Giants. You guys seen that? And uh, Brock is told to build a stone wall. It's football season. You're going to have to deal with my football analogies for the next three months. I'll try and import some others anyway. Uh, but anyway, that, that particular, you know, he, he's tired, really tired. And the coach says, I know you're tired but you're going to have to dig really, really deep right now because we've got to finish this thing. And Jesus is conveying, when it comes to responsibility, you might be tired, you might need the rest, he recognizes you need the rest, and he still says, but you're going to go from the 10-foot mark to the 30-foot mark beyond what you thought you could do. You know, in work, some of you might get stretch assignments. Jesus gives stretch assignments. Knowing exactly what you need. That doesn't mean he won't give the rest eventually.
but in his timing, in Mark 6, verse 32 to 33, it says, so they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. This is going to end the parallel passage to what we're looking at. But the multitude saw them departing, and many knew him, and they ran there on foot from all the cities, and they arrived before them. Yikes. They're like, oh, this is going to be great. We're going to get to the other side. We've just told Jesus, we've had this nice time of telling him what's going on. Now we get to rest a little while before we move on, and the people are there before them. The kid is up before you, right? That's not supposed to happen. See, Jesus establishes that relationship and fellowship are needed. Relationship and fellowship always needed. You need relationship and fellowship whether you know it or not. You need it, but rest is needed. He establishes that. He's not denying that rest is needed. Yes, on the seventh day, we're, we're, we're given a time of rest. We need a time of rest and retreat. We need refreshing. But he's also teaching another principle here, that we'll receive the rest in his timing and we'll have enough strength to get through to that time especially if you've been given a responsibility. Remember, there's always someone more tired than you. There's always someone more tired than you are. There's always someone with a greater need than you have. I know that we look at our own needs and we think they're the greatest, but Jesus will have us look beyond and say, no, no, no. there's someone else that has leprosy. There's someone else that has a life-threatening illness. There's someone else that you're not happy because you didn't get a promotion, which you really needed to actually accomplish something in the family. I'm not, not even talking about a want. It might even be a real genuine need. And Jesus said, yeah, but I have servants around the world who have nothing to drink today. There's always someone with a greater need than us. Some things, in fact, many things, are much more important than our rest. Even though our rest is needed, some things are more important. See, by nature, we all have, I know some more than others, but we all have some bit of laziness in us. Amen? I have it. There's things that I'm more lazy towards than others. Now, some people, because they continue to walk in that, just become lazy across the board, just very lazy in their life and their approach to just about anything. And the scriptures have a lot to say about laziness. There's others that are workaholics. And they take great pride in them being a workaholic, right? There's, de- there's no better compliment you can pay a workaholic than to tell them they're a workaholic. <laughs> alcoholics don't like to be called alcoholics, but workaholics like to be called workaholics because they take great pride in that. And by the way, it's killed many a workaholic too, hasn't it? Heavy on the heart, heavy on the system. Yeah, you can, you can enjoy it for a while, but the Bible tells us not to strive to be wealthy. There's a problem with that too. Laziness is a problem. Workaholic is a problem. Both are not good, or neither are good. Um, God doesn't want us to be idle, but He doesn't want us working ourselves into an early grave either. There's a balance that the Lord will give us. Now, a very, common, a very common thing about today, and it's very, very common in America's church. I believe if you study the books, uh, uh, Jesus' letter to the churches in the book of Revelation, the seventh letter, the church to Laodicea, I believe is representative of the church age we're in today, which is the lukewarm church. And the lukewarm church, very common today, is to put in just enough work for the required paycheck 
the rest of your life is spent on leisure. Whatever that may be. Running, hiking, hobbies, sports all over. You know, I've got to take my kid to volleyball up in uh, Massachusetts or soccer out here. Or they, just the rest of the life. And people will work pretty hard at leisure, don't get me wrong. Because they're the ones on Monday morning, you know it, when I was in the business world, I would hear this. I'm so tired. We had to take the kids to eight different sports convention, whatever they were, things all over the United States, and we're exhausted. And we had to spend a lot of money at the hotels. And who, who told you you had to do that? That was a burden you put on yourself, right? And again, I'm not saying that all these things are wrong, but generally speaking, we've become, hey, let's get enough for the... Let's get enough for our needs, and then the rest is spent on self, self-indulgence, self-focus, my rest, my leisure, my relaxation. Remember this, Jesus knew that the disciples needed the rest, and yet he knows they're not going to get it, at least at this time. But we need to remember something about why they're fatigued at this time. They had gone on a mission. They had just gotten back from going from town to town to town, serving Jesus and serving people. And even before that, they were constantly at Jesus' side, constantly learning, soaking up, and serving with him. They weren't tired because they just had one of those men's weekend golf blitzes. I knew some guys that liked to do this. They would, and they, they would, yeah, uh, we golf 36 holes every day for three consecutive days. And then we need two days off to recover. Right? I, I, had, I had, when I was in the business world, I knew guys that would tell me this, and they plan these things. And there's, again, I'm not saying that that once a year or something like a couple times is wrong, but I'm saying in and of itself, this is not why the disciples were tired. Do you understand? They weren't tired because they had just had a long time doing something that they enjoyed, they were tired because they did a bunch of things that God enjoyed and God had them doing. That's why they were tired. And Jesus knew the source of their fatigue was doing good, not doing something for themselves. And so they're exhausted and they're tired. But you don't normally hear people say, this is not what you normally hear in the, in the unsaved world. And you don't even hear it much in large portions of the American church. You don't hear people all the time saying, I'm so tired because I've been feeding, I've been sharing, I've been discipling, I've been in prisons, I've been in orphanages, I've been doing all these things, and I'm exhausted because all I have been doing lately is pouring out in the name of Jesus Christ and mending wounds. That's not what you generally hear. It's not. You say, yeah, but in long hours, I get this. again, the Lord says, those things have their place but they shouldn't be the entire place. Amen? They have their place. But Jesus said, what are you doing? Are you giving a cup of water in my name? Are you sharing the gospel? Are you helping people? These were the things the disciples had been doing. Yes, they're tired. But in this tired and fatigue, Jesus is going to teach them about responsibility that as they come back, as he knows they need the rest, they're not going to get it. He's going to have them push through it anyway, and they're going to learn some areas of responsibility that you and I have to not only learn, but apply in our lives. Let's look at five areas of responsibility that Jesus teaches. So he tells them, you give them something to eat. Well, first of all, before we get to that, notice what Jesus does personally 
and in his own demonstration. When the multitude, look at verse 11, when the multitudes knew it, they followed him, and when, and look at verse 12, and uh, actually the end of verse 11, and he spoke to them about the kingdom of God, he healed those who had need of healing. Now Jesus is showing the disciples, I was going to take all of us for a time of rest. It tells us in Matthew's gospel that Jesus had compassion. He had compassion. He's like, guys, we were going to rest, but we can't. These people are diseased. They're tired. They're hungry. They're fatigued. And they have ran from city to city to find me. And I'm not going to run from them. That's what he teaches them. So everyone, pull it up by the bootstraps and hang with me a little longer is what he tells them. He doesn't even say the words. He models it. Do you understand that, dads? You don't have to always tell your kids how it works. Model it. I don't really feel like going to this thing, this ministry thing, Dad. We're going. But it's going to mess this up, and it's going to... That'll all be fine. But what if I, I have homework and... I, Lord's things first. First things first. Seek first the kingdom of God. All the other things will be added unto you. Do you believe that? Jesus meant it when he said it. And so he begins to model and teach the disciples uh, five things I want to look at. There's certainly more than five, but five that we'll have time to look at this morning. And I, again, I believe that this miracle, because it's mentioned in all four Gospels, I really believe that Jesus in this particular setting is setting a solid structure for the church to walk in and to live by in our lives and how we relate to a lost and dying world around us. Because Jesus is demonstrating it and showing the disciples, this is how I want you to be. This is how I want you to live. These are the things I want you to recognize. And again, don't lose track that the others are important too. Relationship's important. Rest is important. But these five responsibilities, we want to start with the first one. If you're taking notes, we'll look at five things that I believe he teaches in this setting. The first is his own response, and that's compassion. It says in Matthew 14, 14, And when Jesus went out and saw a great multitude, he was moved with compassion for them, and he healed their sick. And he not only healed the sick, we know from the text here and in the other Gospels, he proclaimed the kingdom of God. He taught them. There's many times that I have been really tired and God says, you still got to go teach Wednesday night. You still got to go teach tomorrow morning. You still have to go uh, to Bonaire. You still have to go and do these things. And you too. Those of you that have responsibility, because there's, there's teachers downstairs right now with the kids, I bet you down there somebody might be a little tired. Somebody had a night where they didn't sleep as good last night as they expected to, and they still have to have a smile for the children. And the children don't always cooperate with that. They push buttons they don't even know they're pushing. Like Zeroing in, and the Lord says, you're still going to have to be patient, and you're still going to have to be compassionate, and you're feeling that slight headache or whatever else, and you're still going to have to bend down and help them compassion. Jesus shows it. Don't forget that the world 
These crowds, they came from nowhere. They beat the disciples there. They were there waiting for Jesus. Don't you forget, don't let any of the worldwide media or unsaved world system tell you otherwise. Don't you forget, don't I forget, that the world desperately needs Jesus. Even though thousands may ignore him, even though you might hear his name used in vain regularly, even though he is continually assaulted by the religions of this world and by atheism and agnosticism and humanism and universities and school systems and everything else, don't forget for a moment that many people, thousands, are flocking to still hear him. More people are being saved in the Muslim world right now than any time in human history. The media is not going to tell you that. Missionaries are telling us this. They're still running. They're still wanting to get one page of the Bible. Millions in China coming to Christ. And Jesus, he does not refuse them, but he has compassion on them. Do you remember God's compassion for you and me? Do you remember the compassion he gave us? I, I was so unworthy of salvation. I was running from God, living in South Florida. I was in college, tending bar, having fun, doing my own thing. I wasn't seeking God, but he definitely was seeking me. These people, at least they're running to find Jesus. I wasn't. And yet he came and found me, and yet he came and found you. What if he didn't have time for us? When we finally came to our senses and we did come to him, he says, not today. We're resting. Me and the Father and the Holy Spirit and my disciples, we're kicking back. Come see me another time. But he didn't do that. He received us at that moment. See, compassion, compassion that comes from God. You can't stir up a man-given compassion. I'm talking about the compassion that comes from Christ through the Holy Spirit and flows out of us like rivers of living water. That kind of compassion that comes from the Lord will cut through the flesh and it'll cut through self-centeredness. If you have the right tool, you can cut through anything. And compassion that comes from God will cut through anything, even our own rotten, self-centered, what-about-me flesh. Let's look at the next thing. If you take a note, these five things, these five principles that Jesus uh, illustrates or teaches here. Number two is probably the big one that most people think of when they think of the miracle here, and it's the one that the children will learn in Sunday school, and that's faith. And it is the most important in the aspect of where we have true faith, everything else will follow. You understand that? Where we have true faith, everything else is going to follow. Where we really believe what Jesus says, everything else will follow. Hebrews 11.6 But without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. For without faith, it's impossible to please God. We have to have faith. We need to have faith. We have to believe that God can do what he said he's going to do. By the way, did you know that God had done a miracle very similar to this? That a lot of the disciples, they might have heard when they were little children. Turn with me real quick. Take a left-hand turn over to 2 Kings. I mentioned we'd look at uh, something from Elisha. 
2 Kings chapter 4. 2 Kings chapter 4. Now, Elisha was a prophet. He was the right-hand man or understudy of Elijah, just like Joshua was the right-hand man or the understudy to Moses, or Timothy was the right-hand man or the understudy to Paul. Uh, really tells us why we need mentors in our life, why we need people that are stronger than us in our life, that we would become what God has called us to be. But Elisha became the same kind of godly man that Elijah was before him, a man of faith, a man of the Word of God. And look at 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 42 to 44. Maybe you've never read this before, maybe you have and you've forgotten it. But the, but the disciples, what they're about to see Jesus do had been done before, but it will be done in far greater measure by Jesus. It, the, in other words, the miracle of the old will be magnified in the new. Look at verse 42, 2 Kings chapter 4. Then a, then a man came from Baal, Shalisha, and brought the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley, not five, and newly ripened grain in his knapsack, and he said, give it to the people that they may eat. But his servant said, what? Shall I set this before 100 men? Not 5,000 men, 100 men. And he said, give it to the people that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left over. So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left over according to the word of the Lord. What had been done by Elisha, who was a great prophet, Jesus was about to do even far greater. Not 100 men, 5,000 plus women plus children. And he was going to take five little loaves and a couple of fish and do the miraculous. But the apostles, they have to have faith. How quickly can our faith fade? They just got back from villages where they, Jesus wasn't even with them physically, although his power was with them, they healed the sick. They cast out demons. They saw entire families come to Christ. They came back and told them, told Jesus, these are all the things God has done through your power. And Jesus said, all right, let's feed the people. We can't. There's only a little boy here. He's got five loaves and two fish. Jesus, send them to get hotels. Tell them to go to TGI Fridays tonight or wherever they are going to go. Tell them to go find something to eat because we got nothing out here in the desert. And if Jesus was like us, he might go like this. But he's not like us. He knows what they're about to say. He knows they've already, in the, in the moment, not necessarily incomplete, but in the moment they forgot about the miracles they had just seen. And Jesus is like, all right, you guys, you feed them. I want you to feed them. Which is not a flippant statement. He really does want them to feed them. But he's testing them at this moment, testing their faith, testing do they understand the spiritual ramifications of what he's already showed them, what he's saying in that moment. And he's also saying, trust my faith that even though you're tired and fatigued, I want you to serve right now. I want you to serve right now. They, maybe their mind was so much on the fact that their rest time had been blown to bits that they have that on the mind. They can't, and then sometimes we're so tired, we can't think spiritually. True? And that's when we need to 
Just start praying. Lord, help me to think like you. Help me to think like you. Help me to think like you. Give me your faith. Give me your faith. And he will. And he'll drive out these kind of secondary issue things and he'll start to have a think like him. It's only in prayer time. I was, I was praying for the persecuted church. It, while I was praying for the persecuted church, the Lord, I didn't think of it. It just dropped in my mind to start praying for uh, ISIS to become completely blind or entire thousands army just fall asleep into a deep sleep, you know, like one of those, uh, what is it, Sleeping Beauty type things, you know, that they're just out. And God's done these kind of things before. I wouldn't think of them in my flesh because I would think, well, that's not possible. And the Lord says, right now, I want you to think of not what's possible to you. I want you to think of what have you seen me do, whether it's walk on water, cast out demons. We're going to feed these people, and I want you guys to start to have the faith. And, you know, there's times where uh, we have to call out to the Lord. If we're sick and we don't, we're not going to make it to this commitment, God say, heal me just in time. I've had him do that many times. I haven't had him heal me just when I get there. Uh, if we're fearful, which I don't care how bold you were yesterday, it doesn't seem to help you for today. Does it? Yesterday's boldness doesn't seem to matter for tomorrow. We need new, fresh boldness from the Lord. Lord, I'm afraid of this. How about anxiety? Uh, once you thought you're done with anxiety, a new thing will actually challenge your anxiety levels. And you know, Lord, I need to get uh, your peace to go through these things. And we have to believe that He can give and do exactly what He's asked to do. So we're going to feed these people. And He says, You feed them. And they're thinking, how are we going to feed them with five loaves? I mean, Elisha did, but he was a big-time guy. Yeah, we don't have the faith of Elisha. And that was only 100. That wasn't 5,000, even if they did think of that. There's no evidence they thought of it or not. But if they did, they might have said, well, that was 100, and they had more loaves. So everyone at least got a small piece. I can't remember which one of the Gospels. One of them says they would have needed, I can't remember, Matthew or Mark, I think, where they would have needed 200 denarii just to make sure everyone got a little tiny bit. Well, that's 200 days' wages. So how many of you have wanted to work 200 days this year and go plop it on a crowd? Or would even be able to do that? So... The need was great, they weren't seeing it, and yet Jesus is telling them, you guys go feed them. Take everything I just taught you in the villages and start doing it. I thought that stopped when we were done with the villages. Mm -mm. That was the start, not the stopping point. Amen? What they did in the villages was not the end of the mission, it was the beginning of the mission. Jesus said, you go feed them. We don't have anything to feed them. Take what you currently have and let me finish the rest. He was testing them. You know, I love John 15, 5. I quote it to myself often, for without me you can do nothing. Nothing. My preaching will never have any impact on you or anyone else in this world. Only the Holy Spirit will have impact on you and anyone else in this world. Your teaching, your example will never have any impact unless the Holy Spirit is shining through it. That's it. Jesus says, give them what you've received, 
by faith and I'll complete the rest. Here's what Jesus was saying. Go feed them something. We don't have food. Feed them something. What did you tell the villages? Go feed them that. Don't wait for God to give you something new. First, go take what he's already given us. Amen? Then he'll give us more. He'll, give us the, he'll fill the rest of the gap. Uh, you reach one, and God will reach millions. Amen? You and I reach one, and God will reach millions. This drove K.P. O'Hannon when he first started, when God told him to go out as a missionary, it drove him crazy, and he was looking at India with 1.2 billion people. He's like, how am I going to reach all these people? And the Holy Spirit just impressed upon him, you're not, you just reach the few, and I'll reach the many. And by the way, he's now reached many. I don't remember, but one time they were planning like seven churches a day. Might have been more than that. Might be more than that now. But the Holy Spirit's testing, the Lord's testing, and he's letting them know that our lack of resources is actually a good thing when our faith grows. Amen? Our lack of resources is a good thing. We fluctuate in the American church between self-reliance that which we perceive we can do without God's help and severe limitation. That we think can't actually be done anyway. Aren't those the two polar opposites anyway? We fluctuate between these two places. You know, the Bible says, how long will you be fixed between two positions? Well, there's the things that I can do, and there's the things that can't actually be done at all. And God's like, where did you get that? doctrine. There's the things that you can do, which is nothing, and there's the things that I can do, which is everything. Do you see how the opposite, God's truth is opposite of our philosophy and our bad habits, our bad doctrine, our bad thinking? These are the things I can do. These are things that can't be done. God said, no, you can't do anything, and I can do everything. And once you settle in that place, you're like, great. I don't care if it's four fish or two fish or one fish. doesn't matter. Move out, and God is behind it. In a desert where there's no resources, this is exactly where God shines and gets all the glory. Amen? When there is no resources, God gets all the glory. I want to read you something um, about um, when the children of Israel, when Moses led the children of Israel out, they went from Goshen, and they went into a desert where nothing grew. There was nothing where they went. And you know the children of Israel had to say, this has to be the worst possible plan of all time. And they looked at Moses, and they at times wanted to kill him because they thought he had led them to death. Moses and the people of Israel uh, were in the desert. But what was God going to do with them? They had to be fed, and feeding two to three million people requires a lot of food. According to the quartermaster general of the U.S. Army, it is reported that Moses would have had to have 1,500 tons of food every day. Do you know that to bring that much food each day, two freight trains, each at least a mile long, would be required? Two freight trains a mile long would be required to bring that kind of food in. Besides, you must remember they were out in the desert, so they would have to have firewood to use in the cooking. This would take roughly 4,000 tons of wood and a few more freight trains, each a mile long just for one day. And just think, they were 40 years in transit. 
And oh yes, they would have to have water. And if they had enough to drink and to wash a few dishes, it would take 11 million gallons of water every day. And a freight train with tank cars 1,800 miles long just to bring water. A lot of people have no idea how miraculous the 40 years in the wilderness was. Oh yeah, that's that funny story where their sandals didn't wear out. <laughs> and nothing else either. And things that to this day we have no idea where they got the gold for, for making the tech. We have no idea where any of this stuff, well we know where they got some of the gold from Egypt, but I mean many of the other aspects that went into the tabernacle, the food, all of these things that God provided them, and God is trying to tell you and I in the church, you guys are trying to build it all yourself when I don't need your help. I don't need millions of dollars. This church will not do the work of God when someone gives us a $1 million gift. We'll do it long before that, and we'll do it best with a few loaves and a few fish. Amen? That's what the Lord is telling the disciples. You don't need Herod's wealth. You just need me. You know, we have so many churches, they're try, you know, they, they, they want to become like uh, corporate America. You're never going to see a thermometer up here with the fundraiser, right? I'm not against it. You know, I don't, if you know someone does that, I'm not trying to. It's just I believe we need to focus on the Lord and let him provide the needs. Amen? Andrew Murray said, faith expects, from God, which is, uh, faith expects from God what is beyond all expectations. Faith expects from God what is beyond all expectations. Corey Ten Boone said, faith is like radar that sees through the fog the reality of things that at a distance the human eye can't see. And it's true. Radar cuts right through the fog. You and I can't see through the fog. The Lord says, the Holy Spirit, He sees through the fog. You pray that God would do the miraculous. You pray that God would heal a person that everyone else says, well, that can't happen. You pray that Pastor Saeed is released and that one night God sends an earthquake and rocks the entire prison just like he did with the Apostle Paul and Saeed walks right out of there and wakes up in a New York hotel room and has no idea how he got there other than the Holy Spirit must have done it. I believe God can do that. I believe in the latter days we'll see more of that as our Faith begins to grow. You know, the mustard seed, Jesus said all you have to have is a mustard seed of faith. He didn't say you had to have faith the size of a watermelon. Faith the size of a mustard seed. Mustard seed faith is small, but it yet becomes one of the largest garden plants, so much that birds can settle in it. That little mustard seed, Jesus said, just go out. I don't know what these couple loaves are going to do. Just start handing them out. And yet, when they did, they kept coming, didn't they? Come back to Jesus, uh... We have to start with five loaves. There's 15 loaves here right now. They come back, and there's 45 loaves. They come back, there's a thousand loaves there, and they're branching out, and their faith is growing. Uh, three more points here: discipleship, discipleship. Jesus tells them to feed. I don't have much time to mention this, but Jesus says, "I want you to feed them." In John 21:17, he would later reiterate this to Peter. You know, Peter, after he fell, Jesus said, "Peter, feed." my sheep. He said in Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples, not just converts, disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe the things I've commanded you. Jesus wants all of us to be people who feed. All of you, God wants you to be discipling somebody. 
feeding somebody. First your family, but even outside your family, unsaved, people being new in the, new in the faith. God wants all of us discipling and feeding. He says, you feed them. Yeah, I can feed them, but I've called you to do the work. I mean, Jesus is saying he could feed them, but he chose to put the work in their hands. They had to do the feeding. Uh, Number four, organization and delegation. Organization and delegation. Very important. He actually says in verse 14, it says, for there were about 5,000 men. Jesus said, make them sit in groups of 50. Huh, that's interesting. Jesus is a pretty organized guy. Make them sit in groups of 50. One of the things that, there's a lot of things to understand here, but smaller groups are needed. I love our time together in a congregational setting here. You know, I, don't, I think we seat like 170 or something like that in here. I love our congregational setting, and it's a good thing. There's, there's all throughout the Bible, there's these congregational settings which are important, but they aren't the only thing. There has to be a time when you and I are in smaller groups of believers for more iron sharpening, iron type of discipleships where you're able to ask questions, you're able to kind of interact directly. So it's very important, you know, we have those kind of formats, our men's Bible studies, our ladies' Bible studies, that you get involved in that type of thing where Jesus says, break them up into smaller groups. And that's actually how you actually end up with more people discipling, more people in leadership, delegating out, that you actually have more people doing that work. He wants that delegation. Jesus is not the one running all around the crowd. I'm going to do it all. You guys sit here and watch me do every single thing. No, he's delegating. You guys are going to go and meet these different individual needs. Organization and delegation. Paul wrote to Titus. Titus was a pastor. He wrote in Titus 1.5, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set and order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. Set an order and make sure that there's delegated leaders in these places and that they would then train new leaders and delegate and the church becomes multiplied. Be fruitful and what? Multiply. That's a principle of organization and delegation. And the last one uh, of this, these five things is prayer. It says in verse 16, he took the loaves and fish and he looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke them and gave the disciples Before the supernatural ever takes place, it starts with prayer. Before Jesus divided and did the supernatural, he took it and he prayed to the Father first. Everything you and I do, in James 5, 17, it says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced his fruits. Elijah, we talked about Elisha, who was the understudy of Elijah, Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed that it wouldn't rain for three years. It didn't rain for three years. The supernatural came after what? Prayer. Prayer is, is the most powerful thing and yet the most lacking thing in the body of Christ. Prayer meetings are the most lightly attended. People, you know, if the truth be told, you know, even pastors of huge churches, I remember Jim Cimbala telling this, he's pastor of Brooklyn Tabernacle up in New York. I remember him saying that he was talking to a couple of really large, well-known pastors, and they confided in him that they don't have much of a prayer life. And then we wonder why we don't see the power being poured out. And these are gifted men that can teach, but gifted men are to be prayerful men. Amen? God wants us to be praying. That's when we'll see the power. That's when we see things poured out. And we want to close with the last 
uh, item this morning in our time this morning, rejoicing, rejoicing. So they ate, verse 17, all were filled, 12 baskets of leftover fragments were taken up by them. What a finish. Now they have 12 full baskets. There's a lot we could teach on this. I don't have time to go into even the 12 baskets and the leftovers. But here's the thing. Remember what Elisha did? Jesus is greater than Elisha. Much greater than Elisha. In Hebrews chapter 1, it tells us God, who, is very, who at various times, in various ways, spoke in times past uh, to the fathers by the prophets, but is in these last days spoken to us by his son. The prophets were great, but Jesus is greater. Moses did great things, Jesus is greater. Elisha did great things, Jesus much greater. And then in verse 4 of chapter 2, it says, God bearing witness with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. These things testified to the power of Jesus Christ. And you and I should be. We should be in awe. We should be amazed at his compassion, right? I'm amazed at Jesus' compassion. We should be amazed at his love for the multitude. We should be amazed at the wisdom that he has, whether it's delegation and organization. We should be amazed at his truth, his incomprehensible power, that he takes a few loaves and fish, and he can feed 15,000 people, perhaps more, perhaps a little less. And it's only the mere edges of his ways, folks. I love that verse in Job. All that you can see... All that you can see about the expanse of the universe, God says these are the mere edges of his ways. He shows us an inkling of his power. These things should amaze us, but these things should also give us reason to rejoice. You know why? We live in a really messed up world, don't we? These people were dying. They were under the Roman Empire. Life was difficult. If you've been with us, it was a miserable place to be for most of humanity at that time under an authoritarian, totalitarian crucifixions, all the kind of things that were taking place. Tough times were tough for most people. We live in a difficult time, but our master, remember this, our master, our savior, our father is greater than all the world's leaders. He created the world's leaders. He's not impressed by the world's leaders. He's not afraid of the world's leaders. He causes multitudes to seek him out. He makes them yearn in their hearts to go find him. He teaches truth that confounds the wisdom of men. He heals when hospitals can't. Isn't that great? They all come to him. They would spent money on physicians like the woman with the issue of blood. Jesus says, you're healed. Done. He's unfazed by famine, desert places where there's no resources. He's not phased in the least by that. You and I... We freak out. He does not. He can provide food or any resources anywhere at any time it's needed. He is never taken off guard by insufficient resources. As a matter of fact, God loves insufficient resources because that's why he chose you and me. Because we are really insufficient resources, aren't we? Some of you ask God, why would you make me a parent? Why would you give me responsibility of employees? Why? God's like, because you're like everyone else, completely insufficient, but I'll use you anyway. Isn't that great? He'll take a few fish, the little lad. God 
at the end of the day, wants us to experience, though, he wants us to experience the harvest, the miracles, the life-changing power firsthand. And when we do, we'll, for, we'll even forget we're tired. Isn't that great? You ever had times where something recharged your battery and you completely forgot you were tired? You got great news? Even greater than getting great news is when you actually go uh, and, and help someone. You guys have heard of Booker T. Washington? I love this quote from Booker T. Washington. He said, I think I began to learn, I think I began uh, to learning a long time ago that those who are happiest is, are those who do the most for others. I think I began learning a long time ago that those who are the happiest are those who do the most for others. And Jesus is telling his disciples, that's where it is, boys. That's where it is, guys. You do what I've asked you to do. Yes, you'll need rest. Yes, you'll need time. But I'm going to give you the faith. I'm going to give you the power. Just go feed my sheep. Go serve people. And watch the miracles take place. We'll then rejoice will be full to overflowing when we go beyond ourselves by faith, beyond ourselves in service to Christ. As we serve Him, as we serve others, we'll see the miraculous and we'll see firsthand, firsthand, not someone else's testimony. We'll have our own testimony, not someone else's miracle. We'll have our own. We'll have firsthand experience where God will exceed our expectations and bless us with an overflow. And by the way, you can't give people what you don't have. So if you're told to give peace, you first have to receive it. Amen? The disciples had it, and they saw it firsthand, and they forever would know how to lead the church because of the things they saw in this miracle. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning that you are the faithful and true witness. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are, as your scriptures say, more than enough. You are more than enough, Lord. You have all the resources of heaven at your disposal. And Lord, we pray that you would strengthen our faith. Lord, that we would be servants who would bear the responsibility that you've given us, that we would be servants that invest in godly relationships. And Lord, we would be those that rejoice and we proclaim the goodness of God. Lord, we pray that in the things you've called us to do, in the desert places in our life and in this uh, area in which we live, Lord, you would multiply the bread of life in our midst, that we would feed many hungry souls and hearts as you've commanded the disciples, you've also commanded us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand as we close in song?
living water rain down on me Lord I need more of you living breath of life come fill me up we are hungry we are we are hungry for more of you we are thirsty oh jesus we are thirsty for more of you we lift our holy hands up we want to touch you we lift our voices higher higher and higher to you we lift our holy hands up we want to touch you We lift our voices higher and higher and higher to you. We are hungry, we are hungry, we are hungry for more of you. We are thirsty. Oh Jesus, we are thirsty for more of you. We are hungry, we are hungry, we are hungry for more of you. We are thirsty, oh Jesus. We are thirsty for more of you. Amen. Aren't you glad that Jesus has no limitations? Aren't you glad the things he asked you to do he knows you actually can't do, and yet he's going to do them through you anyway. Isn't that great? Aren't you glad that all the problems in the world that we really do sometimes uh, breaks our heart, he actually has a solution to every single one of them? And I was, uh, was, my, yesterday was my wife's birthday, and we went out, and we were looking at this one store, and there was this sign that said, pray big. It's like this big. I said, that's going to, my office downstairs is, is eventually going to become my office. We've used it for storage all summer for VBS and the upcoming outreach. But once that's done, I said, that sign is going to my office, pray big. <laughs> but if we're going to pray big, we have to walk big in those prayers. Amen? And God wants us to do that. And Jesus is telling us, hey, I'm going to send you to feed people, and you're not going to have the resources, but right when you need them, I'm going to put them in your hand. Amen? So let's pray big and, and walk in these things and see the Lord do the miraculous in our lives. If you're uh, here today and you don't know the Lord as your personal Savior, I'll be up front if you want to 
talk afterwards, but beyond that, have a blessed rest of the evening. Have a great week. This Wednesday, prayer and praise service. If you haven't come to one of our prayer and praise services, you're going to be blessed if you come out. It's a great time. So have a great week. Good evening. God bless you. You're dismissed.